So we are in the book of Colossians, and we've entitled this series, Christ Our Fullness. It's based on a very familiar passage of scripture found in Colossians chapter 2, where Christ is described as in him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. And because of that, there is a fullness that is extended to us. Verse 10 of chapter 2, And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. So this doctrinal point, this point of Christology that Paul makes in this chapter has consequences for you and I as believers. Because the fullness of God, all that God is, I often think um, of the sermon I heard years ago. Preacher was preaching on, uh, you are the salt of the earth. He was talking about how you can eat a tomato, a sliced tomato and eat it. He said, but all you have to do is add a little salt on the tomato slice and it changes. Cheryl's shaking her head like she didn't like, (laughs) she likes unsalted tomatoes. Um, We know that salt on food has a tendency to bring out a flavor or characteristic that maybe it doesn't have without the salt. I think about that because when we taste salt, we're not saying that we've eaten all the salt that is in the world. But by tasting salt, we know that for the rest of our lives, When we sit down at a table, whether it's at home or in a restaurant, and there is a salt shaker, we have in our minds an idea of what salt tastes like. And Paul is not saying that all of God in a quantity, if you could quantify God, was somehow compressed and pushed into Christ, if I could use human terms. But he's saying all the characteristic, all all that God tastes like, every taste of God that is available is present in the person of Christ. And I believe that that's what he means when he uses this word that we've really been focused on for uh, several months now when he says all the fullness of God dwelt in Christ bodily. This allows then that particular interpretation, if I'm correct on it, allows for Jesus addressing his father. Uh, We don't have to say strange things like he was talking to himself. When Jesus prays, as we will pray in a few minutes, the Lord's Prayer, he says, when you pray, pray like this. When you pray, say, what does he say? Our Father. And where is our Father located? Who art in heaven? Hallowed be thy name. The doctrine of the Trinity is a necessary construct for us to correctly interpret the data we have available to us in Scripture. How do we understand it? That when Jesus is baptized, he comes up out of the water and a voice comes out of heaven saying what? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit, like unto a dove, descends upon him. By the way, it's a difficult teaching to understand. Would we expect otherwise when we're talking about the complex nature of who God is? Some people will criticize because they say that's a construct that is added 
to the pages of Scripture, but this is what theology is. This, this is what Christology is. This is what, when we talk about the nature of the Godhead, we take the data that we have available in Holy Scripture and we try to harmonize it together into something that gives us a coherent understanding. But setting aside the doctrinal, theological, and Christological, Paul's point is that because Jesus tastes like God, you and I also, to some degree, taste like God. Uh, Look at it again, verse 9 of chapter 2, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, and you have been filled in him. So you have the Holy Spirit. We talk about being baptized in the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. It doesn't lessen how much of the Holy Spirit I have. I don't have all of God. The God that I do have, if we want to speak of it in terms of quantity, which is difficult because God is a spirit, the God that I have is not lessened by the God that you have. So I think the tasting metaphor is an important one and an accurate one. That's just to remind you why we have entitled this series, Christ Our Fullness. And then we've used that fullness theme through the book of Colossians. We talked about the fullness of the baptized life. And last week we started talking about the subject, the fullness of grace. So Paul's message concerning the cosmic Christ has definite earthly implications. And we moved on to this new pericope passage of Scripture, 16 through 19 in chapter 2. So we see verse 16 starts with the word therefore. What's the therefore, therefore? On the basis of what I've said to you, let no one pass judgment on you. And then again, he picks up on that theme in verse 18. He says, let no one disqualify you. And then the passage ends, the end of verse uh, 19, he speaks of one body that grows with a growth that is from God. Uh, We saw last week that the phrase, let no one pass judgment on you, could be understood as let no one test your piety by such a criterion. What, what was the criterion? We, haven't, we, we will look at this, Lord willing. What was the criteria that they were using? Well, it's a cryptic passage in many ways because we do not know Paul was a Jew. There were certain laws and traditions that were kept if you were a practicing, law-abiding, God-fearing Jew. And is he speaking out of his own Uh, experience with his tradition when he speaks of, uh, he goes on in verse 16 in questions of food and drink. The Old Testament really doesn't say much about drink. So we don't know what grab bag Paul is speaking of. He talks about in questions of food and drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. He uh, says, let no one disqualify you in verse 18 insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So the scholars are divided here 
Uh, they do believe that Paul, uh, th this is the way I read the passage, that when he says, let no one pass judgment on you, he kind of identifies with being judged by his kinsmen according to the flesh. And he thinks about certain laws that he, and traditions that he no longer observes because as he tells us in Romans chapter 14, these are matters of indifference. These are matters of indifference. Uh, Romans, uh, by the way, because as we've seen is kind of, uh, the Latin phrase is uh, vade or vade mecum. A vade mecum was kind of a small notebook that medieval scholars would keep. And in it, they would keep all their most delightful notes, their gems. Vade mecum. It was a small book that they could take, small notebook that they could take with them. Romans has uh, much of that flavor. We have in it compiled where the battle between Paul's gospel and the circumcision party, how it finally settled out, who won. And in Romans chapter 14, he can now speak of it, this situation that we're reading about in Colossians chapter 2, he can almost speak of it in the past tense. This was an issue that came up, but it resolved itself in that on matters that we tend to differ on, matters of indifference. I, I read a phrase not too long ago by Harold. He uses, it's strange how you can put two words together and they open up a whole new world of meaning. He talks about responsible indifference responsible indifference. So we should have a responsible indifference to those things that would substitute, that are not the substance of Christ. Did you notice that in this passage? Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things that come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So there are some objections that are proffered, that are not substantial. They're not defensible. They're not credible. The substantial, the substance of Christ is something that we all want to defend, live up to, live our lives by, and walk it out. But Paul's talking about things of indifference in Romans chapter 14. Here in Colossians chapter 2, he's saying there is a clear and present danger because apparently what happened in Colossae was there was this kind of syncretism or mixture of Jewish tradition and what we could loosely term as New Age practice. So after he says in verse 18, let no one disqualify you, he speaks of things that maybe are projected beyond Jewish tradition, asceticism, worship of angels, some say that might better be understood as worshiping alongside the angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So we are not to let anyone test our piety by these insubstantial criteria. Christopher Seitz translates verse 18, let no one rob you of your prize. Let no one rob you of your prize. Paul's talked about this uh, spirit of disqualification earlier on. And if you look in Colossians chapter 1, 
uh, beginning in verse 11, he says, May you, speaking to the Colossians, may you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has what? Read it with me. Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of life. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. This is past tense. It's not will deliver us. He says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. Some translations add there the King James Version in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So apparently there was in Colossae, which was a house church as we will see, there was a spirit of uh, hyper-judgmentalism uh, that extended itself to the point where people were criticizing others and saying, you have disqualified yourself as part of the body. And Paul again picks up on this very practical theme where he's just saying, you, you can't let people do that. Don't let people judge you on the basis of externals, of a false set of criteria. I like what Seitz uh, says, and it's based on this passage and the verses that immediately preceded. He, said, he says, there has been one judgment and one body and one cross. So that's what a Christian believes a Christian, of course, is never in the right. When we try to defend a life that does not reflect well on Jesus, and when we say things like, well, you know, God knows my heart, that scares me. <laughs> when I default to that position, God knows my heart, how many understand that God knows our heart better than we do? God knows our heart better than we do. Uh, the passage we heard from Jeremiah. You know, what is in the heart of the prophet is going to end up being in the prophet's mouth. Uh, with your heart, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, you believe, and with your mouth, you confess. It's impossible to keep something in your heart hidden for long. It's going to get up and it's going to get out. At some point, when people say, you know, I really shouldn't say this. <laughs> you know what that is? That is something that's been kept in the heart that is now going to uh, be confessed by the mouth. So a Christian never defends him or herself when they're wrong. When I'm wrong, there's no defense for it other than to say, Yep, and I may say stupid things like, I know I'm wrong, but I still feel that way. <laughs> Human beings are like, uh, what is that? When they grease the pig and they have a contest on who can catch it. We're greased pigs sometimes. We just, uh, we are slippery as eels. And we, we have ways of squirreling ourselves out of situations and justifying. But a believer, a Christian believer says, even in the midst of my 
inconsistency, even in the midst of my imperfect life, I acknowledge that there is a perfect standard. The perfect standard is a person. That person is Jesus Christ. I've placed my faith and trust in him because we believe that when Christ went to the cross, he took that legal document that outlined our faults and shortcomings, our sins and transgressions, and he nailed it to the cross. And so the legal penalty has been paid. The consequence uh, for my sin in this life, I may have to deal with that. A man reaps what he sows, but as far as the eternal penalty is concerned, uh, Christ's death on the cross has brought that into judgment. It's gone to court. The Father has taken into account what the Son has accomplished, and we are declared righteous. So there's only one judgment. There's only one body. It's interesting where Paul picks up this theme in verse 19. Not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body. So when we uh, pass uncharitable, our unsubstantial judgment on a fellow believer, we are, in some senses, we are dividing the body of Christ. We are attacking ourselves. It's been one judgment, one body, and one cross. He speaks of this, of course, in verses 13 through 15. Here again is what we're, Paul is telling us that is critical to his gospel. You cannot overemphasize what was accomplished on the cross. You cannot overemphasize. In fact, we have, we have a tendency to de-emphasize what happened on the cross. And Paul's saying this is where history is nailed together. So this is Hendrickson again, the, the main, and we read this last week, but it bears hearing again, the main purpose of placing such stress on all regulations. So this is what, we don't know what the exact genesis of these regulations are, uh, but we've all felt the critical gaze of, of another believer. We've all felt the sting of being in the presence of another believer who somehow feels that we are less than. We are not responsibly uh, living our lives. Or, or just, they come flat out and say, you're wrong. <laughs> Those are always fun conversations. You're wrong. Paul is saying that these kind of regulations, again, responsible, the, the phrase responsible indifference doesn't mean that I'm coarse. It doesn't mean that I'm rude with those people. It doesn't mean that I get an attitude with them and saying, well, you know, you're just, you're, you're just, you're not, you're less enlightened than I am. You have to have patience with people. You have to try to talk to people. But in the end, the fullness of grace, every Christian believer subscribes to some degree, we're saved by grace through faith. But the fullness of grace, if we really taste and see that the Lord is good. If we really have tasted the saltiness of grace, it has a life-changing transformative effect. 
I think there are some believers who are saved, and maybe all of us, but let me put it this way. I think there are some believers who are saved in spite of themselves. Uh, They may not feel like they're saved. They may be in a very narrow, almost canyon of practice or tradition in their faith. But the grace of God, of course, has the ability to come in like a flood and all that stuff kind of gets washed out of the way. But there are many believers who are kind of in this interim transitional space. And and it's a dangerous place to be in because a tradition, again, has can have a corrosive effect on a person. Uh, Jesus said it himself, you make the word of God not effect because of your tradition. We have to be careful that we don't just parrot the words, yes, I believe that I'm saved by grace, but that we really understand the fullness, the depth of God's love, the wideness of God's love, the height of God's love, the breadth of God's love, to understand the love of God in Christ in that fourfold way not just in a single dimension or even in two dimensions. So people will often place an emphasis on regulations like these to convince us that strict observance was absolutely indispensable to salvation. Now, the examples of this in hyperlegalism and hyperfundamentalism, there's so many examples. Most of them have to do with women which should give us a clue right there what's going on. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> you know, most of the regulations had to do with women. Well, I, I guess maybe not the one about TV. If you were a man or a woman, you weren't supposed to watch TV, and we understand that. But most of these regulations had to do with women, and it, it's because the world has been for a long time, uh, well, it's a, a world of patriarchs. Men are the movers and the shakers. For example, just something that's, that's kind of crazy, and, and I'm indifferent to it, you know? I think there are principles, obviously, when it comes to outward appearance that have to do with modesty, that have to do with, well, just uh, how, how much you spend on your clothing. I bought a pair of $300 shoes that were on sale for $80 and I've worn them for the last 20 years. (laughs) You know, so I'm not talking about making a quality purchase, right? Something that will last you a lifetime. But I'm talking about the crazy kind of ostentatious type thing. So I can, and again, this has to do largely with women. So I can buy a very expensive spangly uh, wristwatch. (laughs) Maybe that's got like a loose bracelet chain on it. And that is permissible because I guess it serves a practical purpose of having a watch. But if I I wore uh, a bracelet that didn't have a watch in it, then that disqualifies me. Or I could wear something in my hair, and if I was a woman, I could wear something in my hair 
But if I wore that same whatever it is on as a brooch, that would disqualify me. You see now, at the 70,000 foot level, which God, we don't know, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his thoughts above our thoughts. We don't know where, how high God lives, but God must look down at us and say, <laughs> you people are foolish. This is foolishness. We might say, well, uh, women have to wear a dress, so I'm justified then in buying a $1,200 dress as opposed to wearing a pair of pants that I found at Goodwill for $3. That, that, would, <laughs> that would disqualify me, see? And most of this has to do with women. I can't think of a whole lot of things when it comes to men and outward appearance. Even in hyper-fundamentalist and hyper-legalistic groups now, you often see that the men can get away with things that the women cannot. Hello. There's a spirit behind that. There's a spirit behind that when we feel somehow justified in passing judgment, to the point where we are disqualifying that person to be a member of the body, the body for whom Christ died. Paul is saying, you can't give that a pass. When he says no one, that is a universal negative. It means no one. Let no one. Let no one pass judgment. Let no one uh, disqualify you. Because, as he said in the first chapter of Colossians, it is the Father who has qualified you on the basis of what Christ has done on the cross. So, Hendrickson says, the main purpose of placing such stress on all regulations was to convince the Colossians that strict observance was absolutely indispensable to salvation, now listen to what he says, or if not to salvation at such, at least to fullness, here's the word that we've been using, meaning perfection in salvation. We know how hard it is to be around a person who is a perfectionist. <laughs> it wears on you, right? <laughs> Now, perfectionists can be good like when you're remodeling a kitchen <clears throat> or a bathroom or building cabinets or painting. You don't want to work for that person. You want to have that person working for you. A perfectionist, a person who believes, and there are, unfortunately, I think it's because the popular church in America has done such a bad job in really walking out what the gospel is, and what are the ramifications of it. If this is true, then what does that mean for me? And there are a lot of people who do not understand the true nature of the gospel. And they live in a shadow land where they're constantly grading themselves. They're constantly taking their own spiritual temperature. There are people around them all the time uh, giving them advice, which, which can at times be very bad advice. Well, you need to do this, you need to do that, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. 
Can I say this? What needs to be done has been done. What needs to be done has been done. It has been done by Christ on the cross. He was the only one qualified to take that legal writ and nail it to the cross. So Paul issues a strong warning against this implied denial of the all-sufficiency of Christ. You see, so we might just say, oh, well, you know, we've had these kind of disagreements for, and the best thing to do is just to ignore it. You know, those people, they're, they're, they're going to go on, they're going to do their thing, and, you know, eventually maybe they'll come to it, and if not, then Jesus loves them too, and when they die and get to heaven, you know, the old joke is uh, man died and uh, went to heaven standing at the pearly gates, and um, I don't know, how, did, how does that go? St. Peter says to him, you have to be quiet in here, and the guy says, why? He says, well, the Pentecostals are all over there, and they think they're the only ones here. So a lot of people just say, you know, let's, uh, let's try to get along and, and let's not make a big issue out of this. And, you know, God, God knows their hearts and on and on and on. And on. But really, to, it, has, it has an implication about our view of who Christ is and what he did. He did 99% of the work, but I won't be saved unless I add my 1%. And that, that percentage can vary. Some will say, well, Christ gave you a fighting chance. You got a 50-50 shot. Really? Is that, is that what the God, is that the good news? Yeah, try to get over the wall and then Jesus will come along and he'll push you over the rest of the way. In other words, wear yourself out. This is the obligation. If you're a true believer, you got to wear yourself out every day. And God is not opposed to effort. Uh, as Dallas Willard says, he's not opposed to effort. Strive to enter in, into uh, the kingdom. He's not opposed to effort. He is opposed to earning. If we think that by our effort, that somehow obligates God. It might be said that we're not Christians at all. Now, I'll just touch on this and then uh, we'll end this morning. This is an interesting thing that Hendrickson says. It is worthy of special attention that the apostle speaks about forgiveness in each of the first three chapters of Colossians. We've we've read these verses already, except for the ones in chapter 3. We heard it again at the end of verse verse 14 in chapter 1, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Well, if we had taken the time to read it, verse 13, and you who are dead of chapter two, you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And then if you look in chapter three, once again, he says in verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We may delve into this a little bit more, but 
what we know as the Colossian church was actually a house church. And the house church, if we combine the book of Colossians with the book of Philemon, apparently the Colossians met in Philemon's house. We have a book in the Bible called Philemon, and it's the story of a man by the name of Onesimus, who apparently was a runaway slave uh, from Philemon's household. And Paul, either while he was in prison or working in in Ephesus, Onesimus uh, somehow, in the midst of that, became a Christian. And Paul writes the book of Philemon, a short uh, letter. He writes to Philemon, and he is interceding on behalf of Onesimus. Now, if you look at the fourth chapter of Colossians, you'll see this name. It's on, Onesimus is only mentioned twice in the New Testament, once, of course, in the book of Philemon, and here in the book of Colossians. Look in verse 7 of chapter 4. Tychicus will tell you all about, so he's closing his letter down. It's kind of, these are the PSs, the postscripts. Tychicus will tell you all about our activities. He's a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose. You may know how we are, that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. In the book of Philemon, then, Paul intercedes for Philemon because a runaway slave, of course, in that day and age, the punishment was severe. And Philemon, apparently, the book of Philemon was sent back as a letter with Onesimus to go back to Philemon, who apparently he was kind of a supporter of Paul in the ministry. And it's thought that Philemon, Philemon's house as a man of means was the place where the Colossian church met. We, we don't have any church buildings from the first and second century. And so this gives rise to the idea that Christians initially met in homes. Acts chapter 2, right? They met together, they broke bread in each other's homes. So it's interesting because Paul, in the letter to Philemon, if you get a chance, usually when you study the book of Colossians, you study the book of Philemon too. If you read a very short letter, you can read it in five minutes. Paul is is kind of twisting Philemon's arm. He's saying, you have the right because this man was your slave, your servant. You have a right to exact a price from him but now he's a brother in the Lord and treat him like you would treat me. In other words, he's pleading to Philemon to forgive. So the book of Colossians, what we know as the book of Colossians, was to be read at the house meeting in Colossae, in Philemon's house, to think that Philemon might be there. And he's hearing this letter read which three times in the first three chapters emphasizes forgiveness. One of the characteristics of a believer who really has tasted, see, the first time you taste salt, (laughs) 
who was that? That was Jason gave one of the boys, it's on Facebook, something sour. It's funny and awful at the same time. He tells Landon, here, take a taste of this. You're going to like this. This is really good. And so Landon puts it in his mouth, and Landon's kind of like, almost starting to cry. And Jason's saying, isn't that good? I can guarantee you whatever that was that he gave him, he will always remember that taste till his dying day. Like even now talking about salt, your mouth kind of starts to water because you, you have a memory imprint of what, you know, why do you say to your wife or your husband, don't put too much salt on that. Christy sometimes fixes, you know, slice cucumbers and green pepper and tomatoes. And I will say, did you salt that? Because we know what salt tastes like. And this is what we're talking about when we're talking about the fullness of Christ. The person who has tasted Christ in his fullness. One of the chief characteristics is that because we understand the nature of forgiveness, we are extremely reluctant to withhold forgiveness. Do we understand the fullness of grace, how it operates, how it overflows in our lives? I can say after what? will be 48 years this month that we've been married. So as, as long as we've been married, that's as long as I've been in the ministry. I've heard a lot of stuff <laughs> from people in conversation over the years. It's almost as if you don't take notice of it. Yes, the person needs to confess it. They need to talk about it. They need to have someone, a confessor, the vicar of Christ who has, in Christ, what would Christ do if he was here? That's, that's what a vicar means. I will act as Christ would act if he was here. What did Christ say to the woman caught, caught in the act of adultery? Go and sin no more. Woman, where are thine accusers? <laughs> you see, you see the, so the outflow of that for us, if the fullness of God dwelt in Christ, and now that fullness dwells in us, I can honestly tell you that over the years, I've amazed myself sometimes, I think about it uh, in conversations with people, that I'm really not shocked by anything. And it's not because I've inured or become hardened to it. It's just that, if you understand, if I can use the phrase total depravity, fallen human nature, the only thing that can overwhelm that is Christ's work on the cross. Then what reason is there to withhold forgiveness from anyone? This is tough when we deal with relationships where, where people have hurt us and we don't feel like their repentance is genuine. It's hard. It's not always easy to forgive. It's the first thing, though. You think about it. It is the first thing out of Jesus' mouth on the cross. Father, forgive them. For they, know not, they don't know what they're doing. They don't understand the... They're not enlightened. These are unenlightened people. 
They're operating in one realm. They have no awareness. Uh, C.S. Lewis calls them flatliners. Imagine if you lived in a world that was just one dimension. Uh, they don't understand the other dimensions. Maybe they understand the, the breadth of God's love, but not the depth, not the height, not the wideness of God's mercy. There is a wideness in God's mercy. And people who genuinely been touched by it, they've tasted the salt, if we could put it that way, of forgiveness in their own lives. They have a desire to share that liberating sense of forgiveness with others. God's chosen and elect people. It's no wonder the New Testament calls us a a peculiar people in the sense that we're not odd, but in the sense that it, it is unique. When you come in contact with another believer, you both tasted the salt. There are certain things that have been concluded that we don't argue about anymore because Christ has taken those things. There's one judgment, one body, and one cross for us all. Thank you, Father. Place these cherished conclusions deeply in our hearts. Oh, how the world yearns for a taste of forgiveness. Somehow the fullness of grace in our lives would overflow and that you could use us to reach that parched and thirsty soul. We ask it now in Jesus' name.